Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of the Lord. I made it back, guys. Woohoo! My name is Mark. I've been gone for three months. I am the pastor here. For those who are newer, prepare to be disappointed. Uh, it's been awesome. Uh, getting back in the swing of things and seeing what's going on in the church during this time. I just want to say uh, just a word of gratitude for uh, the leadership of this church who uh, led the church in my absence for the staff that stepped up. It's amazing to me to see so many people uh, be able to step up and lead the church. And for me, uh, I actually have listened to all the messages during that we were given this summer over the last two weeks, and I am, believe more now than ever before that the church is the healthiest when we hear from a diversity of voices and experiences, and this summer was a deep experience of that, and I heard from many of you that you encountered that as well, and this was kind of an experiment. Like, we literally had no pastor this summer for three months, and the experiment is what, what will happen within the church when that takes place, and what I think I hear happened was the church is the church. And as elementary as, you know, this thing is that many of us learned when we were children, like it really is the people. And it is uh, Christ who wants to be the head of the church. And so uh, I am deeply grateful for the gift of taking a sabbatical. So thank you all. Can we give a round of applause for the leadership and the staff? Thank you. The sabbatical was an amazing experience for me, one for which I'm grateful. One of the many lessons that I uh, had during this time of rest was taking off the coverings of being a pastor. We all wear different coverings, you know, whether it's the titles that we have or the jobs we perform or the roles that we have or the relationships or the family systems that we're a part of. All of those are kind of like things we put on that kind of form our, our, our identity and for me, after 17 years of working in church, this was my first time to take off the coverings of being a pastor. And that covering is unique. It's not special, but it's unique in the fact that it, it can be problematic uh, when it comes to your relationship with God. Because for 17 years, I wasn't sure if I was praying because I was clocked in or because I wanted to hear from God. I wasn't sure if I was getting into scripture because I need to write a, a message and it's, you know, Tuesday 
or if I, I really want to hear from God and God's word. And so for the last three months, I had this childlike role of just being a child of God for the summer. And it was a beautiful experience. Do you guys want to hear the first time I had to put on the coverings of being a pastor, though? It was unexpected. So um, being a middle-aged, pasty person, I have to go to the dermatologist every single year to get an annual inspection to make sure there's no precancerous type things. And for those who are younger, just wait. It's really awesome. It's very vulnerable, and it's really exposing. Because my dermatologist looks at everything. And there is this moment, uh, my dermatologist depants me like I'm in middle school again. And she's looking at my bare bottom, and she goes, are you a pastor? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This is like, and my thought was like, how did that give it away, you know? <laughs> and uh, I go, yeah. And she said, uh, I think I've been to your church once. <laughs> I'm laying down. And uh, there could be a myriad of questions that you think of, like, why are you saying that now? Is this a power play? You know when you're an insecure pastor, when the only thing I thought of was, why did you visit once? <laughs> what happened? Why well, was bad? Oh, it's a sad, sad life that I live. Um, so for those who might not know, our church was given a grant for me to be able to walk in the uh, footsteps of three different historical figures within the church. That is Martin Luther King Jr., St. Patrick, and St. Francis of Assisi. And so I had the summer, I had eight weeks where I walked in the footsteps of th these three different individuals. And uh, for me, it was an amazing experience to enter into someone else's reality. Even though these three individuals were divided by uh, years, chronology, and, and uh around different places of the world, they actually hold certain things in common. They were all, both, all three were fueled by a devotion to Jesus. They were fueled and motivated by Christ's calling and by his example and his teaching. All three spent time in prison or as a captive. All three are wildly misunderstood and often dismissed. All three felt great opposition, especially from within the church. And all three... Uh, lived because out of this, their devotion to Jesus, all three demonstrated what it might mean to be a peacemaker in this world in very different ways. Uh, Dr. King, in uh, peacemaking in the midst of whenever the boot of oppression and racism and violence happens in this world, for there can be peace. St. Patrick, with people who were far from God, who never heard of the gospel of Jesus, to be able to go to a place where he was once held as a slave and a captive, returning there with the good news of Jesus. And St. Francis believing that the call of following Jesus is to preach the gospel to all creation, all creation, especially though those who are living in poverty, those who are discarded and destitute. And so for me, I retraced their steps and considered their lives. And I don't think any of them had any clue that their lives would inspire some 44-year-old pastor from Austin to travel to Atlanta just to sit on the steps of Dr. King's home or to hike into the hills of Umbria just to see the cave where St. Francis would escape and pray. He had no clue that would be a sacred site. Or for me to walk the rural paths outside of Down Patrick, Ireland just to retrace the steps of St. Patrick where he would baptize people in, in, in these small little communities. So I spent my summer being on pilgrimage. 
in these ordinary spaces that felt really, really sacred. And one of the things I came to the realization of is this idea of pilgrimage is actually really central to our faith. Being on journeys actually really is the very core of our faith because Jesus spent three years perpetually on journey, walking from town to town, village to village. Jesus did not come to create an institution, to create some holy shrine that we would visit. He did not come to create a belief system or a sacred monument. Jesus chose to spend his years, his few years in the public eye, leading a literal movement journeying from town to place, walking from place fueled by love and compassion, Jesus was on pilgrimage with his father. And as he encountered people, his primary calling for them was to follow me. It wasn't to memorize these tenets, learn these dogmen, defend them at all costs, work out your beliefs. His calling was not even to invite me into your heart. Instead, Jesus' calling was Come, follow me. I'm going somewhere. I want you to be with me. I want you to learn from me. I want to spend time with you. I want you to see how I embody love, grace, and mercy. Join me in this pilgrimage I am taking. Yes, that would include learning beliefs and repentance and formation, but all those things took place while people were on the road with Jesus. Dirtied, feet from his campaign of love and mercy. And as people followed Jesus and spent time with and learned from him, they saw what it means to embody the love of God. Our scripture reading detailed how Jesus began his movement. It's kind of not much of a spectacle. It's kind of simple. But for me, when you take a step back, it's actually really, really profound. Because this movement could have happened in many different ways, but this is how Jesus began his great revolution of love. He changed the world by this, finding some fishermen, saying, okay, leave your nets, follow me. Finding two brothers, okay, leave everything. Come on, join me. Leave your things. And then we find Jesus hitting the road in verses 23 and 25. What did he do? He taught people. He pronounced that a new kingdom was here. A new reality was coming based on something else that this world doesn't know of. And he brought about healing to people who were desperate for it. And what was the outcome? Large crowds from all these different places started to follow Jesus. The most important revolution of all time took place because ordinary people walked with Jesus. He called them to follow him. And if you read the Gospels, you will find that the people who were called to follow Jesus were not those who we might expect. It was the crowds. It was the tax collectors. It was the morally destitute, all called to follow him. And as we heard even in Mary's beautiful message last week, people like Bartimaeus who experienced healing at the hands of Jesus, their response to that act of grace was to join in this journey of following Jesus. Even after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, we find in the book of Acts, before people were called Christian, the very first name that we were called as people following in this path with with Jesus is the very first name that we were given are people of the way. Before a Christian was ever said, that was our name. We're people of the way. We're people who are marked by knowing what it means to follow in the way of Jesus, to live like him, to speak like him, to love like him, to pour ourselves out like Jesus did, to go in the way where Jesus went over and over again. This is our calling. And how different might we be as a church if that was still our name? 
If that was the label that we held on to, we are people who follow in the way of Jesus. That's who we are. That's our name. I love what author Robert Mulholland, he wrote, he says this about if we were to understand our life with Jesus as a journey, this is what it might happen. When spirituality is viewed as a journey, the way to spiritual wholeness is seen to lie in an increasingly faithful response to the one whose purpose shapes our paths, whose grace redeems our detours, whose power liberates us from crippling bondages of our prior journey, and whose transforming presence meets us at every turn in the road. In other words, holistic spirituality is a pilgrimage of deepening responsiveness to God's control of our life and being. That's what we're about is this deepening responsiveness to Jesus, who's still our good shepherd, who wants to lead us. And for us, our calling is to follow him. We haven't graduated past that. We can't move past it. We can't take on that mantle, and we're going to pioneer our own way. No, we are still called to follow him. Henry Nouwen, he said this, spiritual maturity means a growing willingness to be led even to places we might not eagerly choose. Growing, increasingly willing to be led by Jesus. Am I, this year, in 2023, more willing to follow Jesus than I was last year? In this phase of life, am I I growing in my willingness to be led by Jesus, in the way of Jesus? Do you see how, if your life is a pilgrimage with Jesus, it reorients things? That our life is not about we are Christians, that means we have a belief system, that means we vote for this political party or we do this thing, we have these priorities. No, our, our calling is to follow Jesus, believing that Jesus is actually alive. The spirit of Jesus is alive and at work in our life, wanting us to follow him. To be honest, the idea of living on pilgrimage is actually really easy when you kind of do what I just did, like... When you go overseas or you go for that thing, you go to that destination, when, you're, when you go to that space with this expectation that maybe that'll be a thin place where I meet with God and have that sacred moment, it's actually much harder to have that idea of being on journey or pilgrimage with Jesus when we're between Zoom meetings, uh, just dropping off our kids at soccer class, or in between uh, meeting up with our TA, in between a, a class, or between oil changes. Like, that's kind of a harder idea of, like, living on pilgrimage with Jesus with the mundane parts of our days. I think this is where the Celtic or Irish understanding of pilgrimage is actually really, really helpful. While I was away, I heard this story of what does it mean for the Celtic tradition of being on pilgrimage. Uh, It's around this word perignatio. This word perignatio is their understanding of what it means to be on pilgrimage. The goal is not to find God at the end of the journey, wherever that is, but to experience God in the going, in the liminal space between here and what we hope to experience out there. There's a story in the ninth century that demonstrates this. Three Irishmen jump in a boat with this longing to be on pilgrimage. They boarded a boat and spent seven days drifting across the ocean without oars. They landed in Cornwall, England. When they were found, they were brought to the king's court to be questioned. They were asked, why they were going here, what their intentions were, and they, it's recorded, they said, that we stole away because we wanted for the love of God to be on pilgrimage, and we care not where. They just wanted to be on pilgrimage. I know after 
a number of 100-degree days, you might be saying the same thing. I don't care where I go. I just get me out of this, this heat, right? Uh, but for the Celtic Christian understanding of pilgrimage, it's not about the preset destination, but it's about being on journey with the living Jesus. We enact pilgrimages not to hopefully find Jesus waiting at that destination, but we go on pilgrimage. We see our life as a journey because Jesus is perpetually on the road, even in our mundane, boring days. And if we forget that, if we forget that, then we might be tempted to chase that next experience or the next promise, always disembodied, always compartmentalized, removed, waiting for that fix out there. And we're perpetually blind to the common holiness in our midst. That's a different way of living, to see our lives as pilgrimage, as a journey with Jesus. Not with the goal to get that place, but to become a certain kind of person. One who reflects Jesus. That's why perhaps the most difficult journey in our journey of becoming is the one within. I've heard this said that the longest journey is the journey inward is actually walking with Jesus and opening ourselves, being increasingly willing to open ourselves up to Jesus and allowing Jesus to allow us to, to lead us in the journey inward. The vine believes that transformation takes place by walking with Jesus. It is if we remain or abide in Christ that we become not a better version of ourselves, not a moral, moral person, but we actually become more and more like our Savior and more and more a whole, unique, distinct person. One of my favorite parts of the pilgrimage that I took this summer was in Selma, Alabama. As many of you know, a small town of Selma is where a very important march took place. From Selma to Montgomery, it was they were protesting unjust voting repression that was taking place during the civil rights movement. There were actually three different marches that took place in Selma. The first march was upended when marchers crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge to find state troopers and a posse waiting for them. That violent day would be later called Bloody Sunday. It caught the national uh, attention. The second march was called off by Dr. King, but that didn't matter because that evening two different people were lynched. Stirred by courage and a calling for justice, Dr. King would lead thousands on a third march, a pilgrimage from Edmund Pettus Bridge, 54 miles to Montgomery, Alabama, marching 12 hours a day, sleeping in the fields along the road. So in late May of this year, I invited a couple friends from college to join me. We flew to New Orleans and we drove to Atlanta. And one of our stops was going to be Selma. It was moving to be there, to start at Brown Chapel where they began their work and walk the bridge without fear of violence or oppression, but imagining what that would be like to go to the other side. When we reached the other side of the bridge, we saw a small building. It had a sign on it. It said, National Voting Rights Museum. By the way, for many of us young people who never appreciated the civil opportunity to vote, this experience changed my perspective. Um, as we got closer, we saw this building, and we met a man named Sam Walker, who's there on the right. He welcomed us. He was picking up litter along the road, and he led us to this museum. And you could tell he was proud of it. It held pictures of the marches that took place. He gave background stories to the people that were there to the events that led up to Bloody Sunday, even plaster footprints of some of the people who walked with Dr. King. 
To our surprise, he began talking all of a sudden in first person. As he, when he was 11 years old, he took part in these marches. He would uh, be in school, and he had this agreement with his parents. If his brother was waiting for him outside the school, he could skip school and join in with that. And so that's what he did at the age of 11. And for me, one of the things I thought is, look at him, he's not that old. This is not like far off distant past. This is current reality, right? But one thing stood out to me of what, what he said, what Sam Walker shared, is he said this. He said, now you couldn't march just because you believed in the movement. You had to go through training. You had to internalize the principles and practices of nonviolence. Though many would maybe raise a hand and be like, oh, I'd love to be a part of history. I want to walk with Dr. King and be a part of this march. Not many, as many, were willing to go through the training, to spend time in the church basements to be taught these principles of nonviolence. For instance, one of the things that, uh, that Sam Walker demonstrated is when there was a threat, they were trained to take the prayer posture so that they would not be given over to respond in violence. They would take this prayer posture in a time of great uh, uncertainty. Now, something that was interesting for me is the work that he was talking about never got the spotlight. Like it never, never saw the reporters, but that was part of the journey. It began in the church basements and it led all the way to Montgomery. People were being trained and shaped for that part as well, by that part as well. It made me think of our journey with Jesus. Many of us long to go up to the mountaintop we wait to see God in the high holy days or for that conference or that speaker that's going to come. But what we might miss out on is the transformational experiences happens within the mundane, ordinary parts of our day where we're being shaped and formed by the presence of Jesus. And even though it might not be a spectacle, these are the things that change us. They're the things that, that form us of being people who are known to walk with Jesus. When I consider the travels that I took the summer. I'm not going to lie, like some of the moments were just incredible. Uh, you know, being able to stand underneath the Sistine Chapel or walk the Coliseum or stand at St. Patrick's grave in the Irish rain all by myself. Uh, those were really, really special moments. But when I look back, that's not actually the things that changed me and shaped me and formed me. Do you know the things that I actually think were more transformative? It was being able to be with friends and family in all those mundane moments together, unhurried. All those mundane moments in this journey. The time together is spent over meals or watching sunsets, endless games of Uno or getting lost on cobblestone roads, comforting a child with a skinned knee, talking about having a first crush, laughing when we tried our best Irish accent or playing hide-and-seek whenever possible, listening to music on road trips, drawing the wrong side of the road, looking for the best gelato in town, dancing in the streets, perfecting the cannonball, riding lime scooters through crowded streets like we were kids all over again, or reading the Sermon on the Mount slowly this time. These were just as transformative, just as powerful, just as meaningful moments as anything else that we had. Why? Because we were present with each other. And I just think about all those mundane moments that might not translate to Instagram, but they shaped me. 
They formed me. They fueled me. They, they met with me on a soul level. And I think if I were obsessed to get to that next thing or chase that next thing, I would have missed it. They're a part of the journey. They're part of the pilgrimage through life. And all, if we follow Jesus, all of those things can be sacred. Whether we realize it or not, every day we are with pilgrimage, on pilgrimage with Jesus. But only if we could see that. If only we could have this understanding that all of our days is a journey with Christ. Whether we realize it or not, we are on journey with Jesus every single moment of our days. Don't be content about learning about people's journey with Jesus. Don't check out in the mundane moments of your days. Open your eyes to see that our world is set ablaze to Jesus' often subtle presence, but that presence that can shape you, transform you, heal you, grow you, and renew your life. And remember that Jesus' invitation still remains the same. Come, follow me. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.